0: A lot of companies are talking about a tighter consumer, but what's the data say? You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'm Ricky Mulvey, joined today by Nick Seipel. Nick, good to have you back.
1: Great to be back here with you, Ricky. I've been on out on some leave, uh, spending some time with my new baby, and uh, it's great to be back. With you. Obviously, he obviously loves time spending with the family, but it's nice to be back in the saddle, uh, seeing what's going on in the stock market. It'd be nice if the numbers would go up a little bit more, but uh, uh, we'll see how
0: things go. Yeah, well, I'm sure your spending has changed, and so has it changed for a lot of consumers. Americans spent six percent more in August compared to last year, growing two percent faster than inflation. You know, on these earnings calls, you hear a lot about a tighter consumer, macroeconomic headwinds. How should investors digest this data?
1: Well there's certainly concerns about some macroeconomic headwinds on the horizon think about student loan repayments beginning this month uh, but when you look at this this consumer data uh, you know looking back at August I'd say don't let a month or two of data let you see a trend that isn't necessarily there there's some idiosyncratic things Going on in the market that I'm sure you have heard about. Believe it or not, Taylor Swift has been on tour this summer. Beyonce as well, and that might sound a little sound a little trite for me to bring up here, but I'm not the only one mentioning this. You've had economists at Adanska Bank blame Beyonce for surprisingly high inflation back in May because she began her tour back in Stockholm. Federal Reserve economists have called out Taylor Swift uh, Taylor Swift's impact on the economy when it comes to lodging, travel, that sort of thing. The Eras tour alone expected to impact the economy. By over five billion dollars. Traditionally, you see about every hundred dollars being spent on live performances, trickling into another three hundred dollars in ancillary local spending. Think about you buy your outfit, you buy your hotel, things like that. You're seeing spending on these tours run even higher. However, you know these tours came to an end in August, so these impacts that we've seen over the past couple of months, abnormal spending that I'm sure you may even know a few friends in your life, Ricky, that have uh, spent ungodly amounts of money on some of these these tours. It's not going to repeat going forward, and we have some new. Uh, idiosyncratic things taking place, as I mentioned, with student loan payments. So I think the tighter consumer is still on the horizon, and we have some unique things going on that's driving some of this data.
0: Well, and, and part of it is it's not just Taylor Swift, it's not just Beyonce, but it's this preference towards experience, especially after um, the pandemic. Airbnb growing revenue at an eighteen percent clip in its latest quarter. Ticketmaster sold more tickets at a similar clip for the for the first half of the year, with this preference. Are there any companies that you're watching that may benefit from this boost, this preference towards experiential spending?
1: Uh, I would say, you know, looking at investing today, it's really the, the, the credit card companies, the companies that have maybe financed some of this spending over the summer that I think would be, be the beneficiaries today to the extent you see folks carrying higher balances. You can think about your live nations of the world and folks like that. But remember, these tours have come to an end. We're now, now it's time to go see the movie. Uh, and so some of the, these impacts we've seen in the, past, the past couple of months aren't going to repeat uh, until we see the next summer concert season come around next spring.
0: Well, speaking of spending on concerts, last week, the band U2 opened up The Sphere in Las Vegas. It is a concert venue with the largest LED screen on Earth. It's it's. I would encourage everyone to watch the videos of it. Difficult to describe on a, on a podcast, but it's basically a 20,000 capacity theater that looks like it's inside of a, of a planetarium. I, I mean, there is a business behind this that is publicly traded. But first, Nick, what were your reactions to sort of seeing this opening, the videos and the hype around it?
1: Uh, I mean, just amazing. Uh, first and foremost, it's like watching something right out of a sci-fi movie. I'm sure folks have seen there. There's, you know, a video of a larger than life eyeball that you see up there. It sounds like you know, looks like something you might have seen um, in Blade Runner. I guess my my high level thought is you hear people oftentimes say we don't build pyri- pyramids anymore. We don't build cathedrals, and I would say yes, we do. The largest spherical structure ever built in the history of humanity now exists in Las Vegas. They're doing it, and uh, you can invest in it.
0: Yes, you can you can invest in your very own Death Star possibly too. The Sphere is a publicly traded company, Sphere Entertainment Group, which is a spin-off of the Madison Square Garden Group. Looks like James Dolan was trying to separate the sports and the entertainment uh, companies. So focusing on Sphere Entertainment Group, this includes, we'll call it Sphere 1 in Las Vegas that we just described and a plan to build Sphere 2 in London. You're also getting what I would what I would descri- or what is described is a humanoid spokespot named Aura that welcomes people into the venue and takes questions about engineering and might have a might look a little bit like the iRobot stuff. Anyway, the thing that's also packed inside of this company, Nick, that not a lot of people are talking about is Madison Square Garden Networks. That's right, you're getting a cutting edge LED twenty thousand seat theater in a legacy cable media company. It's easy to like this company from an entertainment perspective, but how about from the in- investment side? Seems like an odd couple.
1: It definitely, seems like an odd couple. Uh, you know, a, a, a segment of the market that you know. Hopefully, we see dozens of these spheres all across the world, and in an area when you look at some of these these regional sports and entertainment networks, really been challenged as we see an evolution in in, in what uh, cable companies are willing to spend uh, for some of these networks. That that has really presented um, a challenge. The vast majority of revenue today is coming from these existing. Uh, sports networks. They, they have two, MSG Network um, and MSG Net serving the Northeast. Also have an over-the-top service, MSG Plus, where you can watch your local Rangers games, Islanders, things like that, really driving uh, most of the revenue today. But the, obviously, the, the exciting opportunity is that the sphere has just opened and lots of folks um, are, are excited to go. A couple opportunities for revenue that you might expect, right? You've got an 18,600 seat Arena that they're going to hold events in uh, throughout the year, going to generate revenue from that. Also, an interesting advertising opportunity. We had to kind of pitched the pitch deck for uh, for that advertising uh, presentation leak over the past couple of days. The rates are four hundred fifty thousand dollars a day to to run your uh, advertising copy on the uh, on the sphere, or for a week at six hundred fifty thousand dollars. This includes also working with a group of over three hundred designers from that MSG group to help generate the creative you need for this very unique structure they estimate that they will generate 4.7 million daily impressions 300,000 of those coming in person folks walking out on the strip in las vegas or playing on the golf course where you're in, inside of the wind golf course i guess that's some very valuable real estate but also 4.4 million estimated uh, social media engagement so folks like me and you Ricky, that probably haven't been de- out to las vegas since this thing opened i've seen some of those ads out there if you if you run those numbers uh, you know it just ended your quick $450,000 a day times 365 days a year $165 million a year and Potential revenue if you're fully booked, so that that could be an interesting um, opportunity. Certainly, um, a lot to be proven out when it comes to the advertising sales, and then also, you know, is the excitement around this U2 uh, concert going to remain um, as things move forward? The nice thing that, that kind of maybe gives the the company a little bit of a cushion has 340 million dollars in cash and cash equivalents on their balance sheet, and another 270 million dollars in Madison Square Garden entertainment stock that likely will be will be used to fund future operations. Uh, going forward, so kind of a mix of uh, of businesses.
0: The exciting one is the sphere. Um, we'll see where things go. So right now, it's getting a lot of social media attention, certainly a lot of hype. What would you say to investors who are maybe thinking about taking a nibble at what is probably the shiniest object on the planet? I would
1: say that just know that the type of investment I would say speculation that that you're making here today. We've had one concert we're on the first run of concerts here at this arena it cost billions of dollars to build one of these and we've yet to prove out the ROI on that original investment if you you know go what are we going to fall back on if the sphere doesn't work we have some you know challenged uh, regional uh, sports properties we just saw ESPN have a challenged negotiation i think we're likely going to, going to see some of these MSG networks have, have some challenges as well so just keep in mind that that for this investment to work out you're going to need to see many multiples of these spheres Being deployed in the world, so this is this is almost like a venture capital investment where, you know, you shouldn't be surprised if you lose a decent chunk of of your cash. But if things work out, you can tell a story where where things work out great for you. So you know that should be reflected in the weight that you put on this stock in
0: your portfolio. All right, well, we'll see what too many spheres make. Nick Siple, appreciate your time and your insight. Great to be here, Ricky. Before we get to our next segment, just a quick reminder, if you've got a question, take, maybe there's a company you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at podcasts at fool.com. That is podcasts with an S at fool.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcast app. All right. What could change your spending in retirement? The biggest culprit might not be healthcare. Robert Brokamp caught up with Roger Young, a certified financial planner, and the Thought Leadership Director at T. Rowe Price to talk about how retirees actually
2: spend and how you can plan for it. Retirement planning starts with having an idea of how much annual income you'll need when you stop working. And People have likely heard that they need anywhere between 70% and 85% of their pre-retirement income. You wrote a report on this topic. What figure is a good starting point and how did you determine it?
3: Well, before I launch into the specific number, a couple things to get out of the way. First, though, I do do want to define that term, you know, what we call income replacement rate. And I think you described it well, but I want to make sure we're talking apples to apples and it's income before taxes that we're talking about. So, comparing post-retirement to pre-retirement. We're not mixing this up with, you know, spending versus income or, you know, pre or post-taxes. It's you know, before taxes, your gross income, most people have a sense of what their gross income is. I make X thousand dollars per year. And of course, remember, this is all a rule of thumb. You know, everyone's different. Makes sense to do uh, a more detailed planning as you approach retirement. So now that the caveats are out of the way, (laughs) our analysis showed that a 75 percent income replacement rate is a good starting point for a lot of people. And you might immediately say, well, why shouldn't it be close to 100%? You know, why why do I need so much less income? And very briefly, three main reasons. One, you no longer have to save for retirement when you're in retirement. So people are hopefully saving, you know, we recommend 15%, or maybe they're saving five or 10 or 15 or whatever. You don't have to allocate that portion of your income anymore. Second, most people, not everyone, but most people spend less on average in retirement. And then third, you know, due to those factors and some other things, like not having payroll taxes anymore, most people are gonna have lower taxes in retirement. So you add those things up and a lot of people the number is is around 75 instead of a hundred.
2: And The tax part really is remarkable. I don't think people appreciate how much their taxes will go down for many reasons. One is that a lot of the income that retirees have, like Social Security, is at least partially tax-free. You get a higher standard deduction when you're 65 and older. A lot of other sources of income, withdrawals from a Roth, for example, or long-term capital gains, it's all taxed at lower rates. So, For many people, their tax bill will drop dramatically
3: yeah you know we with that seventy five percent number, we're assuming that you know the to get from a hundred to you know down to seventy five you know eight percent of it is not saving for retirement anymore, and again that that varies by person. Five points of it we we attribute to people spending less, and the other twelve percent. We attribute to lower taxes, and I think we're being even hopefully conservative on that because of, of reasons you mentioned, uh, like Roth and other other things that are taxed less. We don't even assume uh, people have Roth accounts when we we come up with that number. So yes, the taxes, you know, it's it's an area where people don't have a great understanding of it, and so by by doing things on a, a before tax gross level hopefully we're we're telling people a message of we're doing the tax calculations for you. You don't have to do that. Just take our word for it. Hopefully you're going to be uh incurring less in the way of taxes in retirement.
2: A big variable in the calculus of retirement is social security and the amount that that is going to replace of your pre-retirement income depends on a lot of factors. So explain how marital status and household income will play into how much social security is going to help you.
3: Yeah, you know kind of following on the, the conversation about replacing your income in, in retirement. You know, it's interesting, when we did the analysis, marital status and income level don't have a huge impact on that replacement rate, that you know 75% rule of thumb I mentioned. It goes up a little bit as your income level increases, but not, not too much. What does change significantly is what you pointed out, how much of that income is going to be replaced by Social Security as your income increases, Social Security replaces less. And that's just how the benefit formula works. And if you think about it, it's it's also consistent with how you're taxed, right? Up to a certain level, you have the Social Security tax. Over that level, you don't have that portion of the FICA tax that goes away. Now, marital status also affects your Social Security benefits. And and one key way is that if you're married, uh, you can benefit from the spousal benefit, even if you're a sole earner couple, so you know that that spouse who doesn't work can get some social security benefits, you know, in their name in addition to the the primary earner. So there are some nuances there. I wouldn't say that that's necessarily as big an
2: impact as as the income side, but it does make some difference. Yeah, I'm going to put some numbers on that because it is interesting. So just pulling some numbers from your report, assuming a household has a hundred thousand dollars. For the single person, oh social security is only going to replace twenty-eight percent of that. A married household but only one earner, forty-two percent, and married dual income thirty-six percent. So the people who are doing the best are the people who are married, only one income earner. The single person only getting a twenty-eight percent replacement rate, which is really shocking. In fact, this is one of the reasons why being single is actually a little bit more financially challenging. So certainly understanding how Social Security is going to play into your retirement is crucial. Yes. Now now, of course, the
3: single people, you know, they only have one income. So they might have a lower income than a, you know, a dual income married couple. But yeah, comparing a single person to a, a sole earner married couple is is a you know, more direct comparison. And yeah, there is definitely a difference in how much you'll get in social security for the same level of of household income.
2: Okay, so we talked about how to estimate the amount you need in your first year of retirement. Um, but I often say that retirement isn't one goal, but it's a series of annual goals. The amount you need in that first year, the amount you might need your second year, and might you need your third year, from the you know the day you retire to the day you expire. Uh, Turo Price recently published a report about spending in retirement. So, what do we know about how expenses how expenses change as you go through retirement?
3: Yeah, my my colleague Shadipto Banerjee, has done a lot of work on spending in retirement. And it's it's very important, as as you point out, you know, a lot of the rules of thumb we talk about, things like the 4% rule people have heard about in terms of being able to withdraw 4% of your assets uh, sustainably, that's kind of based on a flat spending level. You know, our income replacement rate that I just talked about, that was based on a flat spending level. So, those are not a complete picture of reality. You know, it goes back to, to that initial caveat, you know, these are rules of thumb. You need to think about what, what your situation is going to look like. What Shadeep Banerjee, my colleague, found is that on average, real spending, so spending excluding the effect of inflation, that tends to go down by about 2% per year in retirement. Now, people might be thinking, well, I'm gonna spend a lot more in medical costs. And that generally is true and certainly has potential to be big numbers, especially late in retirement. But generally, other expenses. Tend to go down, and those tend to outweigh the increase in medical costs. So that was the overall finding. And there's there's uh, there's other work that he's done in in the field as well.
2: Yeah, the basically, really, what it comes down to is, as we get older, we just do less. We eat less. We travel less. We spend less. We buy less. Um, we may enter retirement with a mortgage that goes away. Sadly, you know, we may enter retirement married. But a spouse passes away and expenses drop another ten to twenty percent. This assumption that many people make—that expenses actually go up every year with retirement—kind of overstates how much we may need. Although that's, it really does depend on your situation. In terms of healthcare costs, the more your healthcare costs rise, there's often offset by other things, right? The the worse your health is, the less you can travel, the less you can go out to eat, the less you're probably driving your car. So expenses go down on average, but that's the average. And this is a key part of the report, which found that there's actually a good bit of volatility in retirement spending. So, what kinds of ups and downs did the research show?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a fair amount of volatility out in the real world when it comes to, to retirement spending. Uh, you know, our, our work, uh, Shadip work, found that looking at people over two-year periods, roughly one-quarter of households see spending go down by 20% or more, roughly. And then another quarter of people will see an increase in that two-year period of roughly 17% or more. So those, those are significant changes in, in spending for you know, roughly half of the, the population. His research found that that tends to be true for people across the various ages in retirement. So whether you're talking about people just retired in their their sixties to people late in retirement in their 80s and 90s, you can still see those those spikes. So it's not necessarily just, you know, one thing that causes it, like, you know, having to go into a nursing home or, or or something like that. There's there is that potential for for significant spending changes throughout your retirement.
2: I think what one of the most surprising takeaways from this report is and you touched on it. Most people would probably think it's healthcare but actually 25% of the, of the variability in spending was due to home-related expenses, only 5% due to healthcare and 3% due to transportation.
3: Yeah, I, I do think that that's the area where you know, Shadipto's research was, was somewhat surprising. And, and we do tend to think of expenses in you know, a couple different buckets, the you know, discretionary or non-discretionary. We're, we're looking at a different way, kind of optional versus essential. And those essentials would include things like housing, healthcare, transportation. And you might think that, okay, those essentials are somewhat fixed, you know, like a mortgage payment. But you pointed out earlier, you know, people can, you know, get rid of a mortgage payment, you know. What Shadipto found is for people at lower income levels, the non-discretionary expense categories, primarily housing, actually are what cause most of the spending volatility. So people change where they live and, and that affects a lot of that expense. Now, as you move up to higher income levels, the discretionary expenses drive more of the volatility. So you think you know those households have more flexibility to decide, you know maybe my my portfolio's got uh, done well over the past year. Let me plan another big trip. Let me buy another expensive guitar, Robert, right? You know things like that. You know a lot of the upticks are temporary, but in, at least in at least fifteen uh, percent of the cases, you know a household still spending at that elevated level after 4 years.
2: So how should retirees plan for this possibility that their expenses will will spike for 2 to 4 years or longer? Well, a few a
3: few ways. And and first I guess you know, maybe a quick reality check, you know, we think of volatility as, as bad and spending increases are bad. And and I think having a mindset, well, those spending increases aren't necessarily a bad thing. You know, It could be nice if you have some growth in your, your uh, portfolio, and that leads you to a higher level of discretionary spending. Uh, one of the things Shadipto found is that changes in discretionary spending are highly correlated with changes in your level of satisfaction uh, from a financial standpoint. So, it can be good. Uh, but it can also be a shock that you weren't prepared for. So that potential for unexpected changes is definitely something you want to plan for. A clear takeaway from our report is you want to have some liquidity in retirement. So liquidity meaning assets that you can get to in a hurry that aren't really volatile, that are will generally hold their value pretty well. So cash obviously is 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 very liquid. Most people, in retirement don't tie up all of their resources in, you know, a guaranteed income type product that kind of locks in, you know, locks in the ability to, to have income, but at the same time doesn't have that liquidity. You can't access that money anymore. Um, so, we do think it's good what most people do that, that they don't tie up all their assets in that way. Within your investment portfolio... You also want some mix of things. So you want some investments with growth potential and others that are more conservative. You know, One way to frame this is you know, finance researchers have thought a lot and written a lot about investment volatility and volatility of your returns. I think there's been less said about this spending volatility issue. You want to protect yourself against both of those and especially both of those going against you at the same time. So if you get hit with one of these spending shocks, you know, your spending is up 25% over 2 years and at the same time the stock market has had a downturn. You know, that can be painful if you're having to take money out of stocks that have gone down. It really helps to be able to draw on, you know, cash or investments that probably didn't go down as much. And I'm going to throw in one more type of diversification that that I've done a fair amount of work on. Uh, tax diversification. so what does that mean? That means having some assets in different types of accounts that have different tax treatments. you mentioned earlier, uh, Roth accounts. you know that's a great example. If you have some Roth assets, you might draw on those to cover some of your unexpected expenses instead of taking distributions from a, a tax deferred or traditional account uh, where all of that money is taxable and it could push you into a higher tax bracket. So, there there are a lot of of things to consider in terms of preparing yourself for changes that are unexpected.
2: Yeah, that's a whole other aspect of retirement, in, in that you have somewhat control of your tax situation, but that if you are forced to take out money from a traditional IRA or sell something at a capital gain, that's going to drive up your tax bill, which then come April 15th, you have to come up with more money to pay those taxes, which means you have to take more money out of the account and sell more assets. It's kind of like this tax snowball. But if you have some money in that Roth account, you can take that out tax-free and kind of cut that off right there.
3: Yes, yeah, that, that's uh, that's a good way of putting it. I hadn't thought about the the snowball come April fifteenth, but yes, uh, you know, if you don't plan ahead for the fact that you're taking money out that has to cover the taxes as well, uh, that can be a
0: rude awakening. Always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Ricky Mulvey. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.